Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, November 2nd, 2017. We're going to do some teaching today. You're going to need a Bible. There's no way around it. Just got back from the uh, Reformation event. Don't want to talk about the Dodgers. <laughs> Just going to move on. That's all I got to say. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being put out there is far from biblical, not even close to like what God's Word actually says or reveals. And as a result of that, many people are being deceived and being manipulated for shameful gain by things that nobody should be teaching. It's kind of the idea. All right, so got back last night from the uh, Reformation event in Minneapolis put on by the American Association of Lutheran Churches. It was a fine event. Came back in the snow. Like I said, don't want to talk about the Dodgers. There's always next season. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was snowing. (laughs) I get the feeling that winter is going to be arriving early here this year in uh, North Dakota. But um, decided that I thought what would be very helpful – uh, you know, it, 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 we're still kind of in that re- recognizing and remembering the Reformation time, uh, you know, at the 500th anniversary. So for today, we're going to listen to my sermon from Sunday and a uh, lesson that I taught online on the core doctrine of the Reformation, which is salvation by grace through faith alone, which I taught on Saturday. And uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So uh, the sermon that I uh, delivered, what we'll do is we'll listen to the sermon first. The sermon I delivered is entitled, uh, No Assembly Required. No Assembly Required. 
And I'm going to be working my way through a large swath of Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. So uh, let's go ahead and get to it. When that's over, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back, and we'll, the segment will title uh, Roseboro's Ramblings on the Core Doctrine of the Reformation. So grab a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Let's get to it. Here is the sermon titled, No Assembly Required. In the name of Jesus. So today we recognize and we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the posting of the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And let me say, if you were hoping to hear a really long history lesson on the Reformation today, then I must say that I'm going to disappoint you. My job is to preach the Word. And if we're going to honor the Reformation, we must honor God's Word, and recognize that we celebrate not Martin Luther, but what we celebrate is that God miraculously chose to have mercy on us by allowing once again the Gospel to break forth into the church where it had been covered up by all kinds of man-made doctrines and traditions that obscured the glory of Christ and confused salvation and turned it into a work that something that we somehow had to accomplish by our moralizing life, our prayers to saints and things of that nature. So we must again return then and study God's word and the very text that led to this outbreak of the gospel 500 years ago, which we celebrate as the Reformation. And so we're going to return then to our epistle text to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to back up in the context just a little bit, starting at verse 9, so that we can see what this amazing text teaches regarding the fact that we are saved not by our works, but that we are saved purely by God's grace because of what Christ has done for us and His grace and His mercy. Now, in order to help frame our sermon today, I have to give you two slight anecdotal stories just to kind of set up a little bit of a frame, and we'll work with both of them throughout the sermon. I don't know if any of you noticed this, but um, Christmas was all gospel when we were children. It turned into law when we had children. Let me explain. When we were children, Christmas was like the best thing ever. In fact, I loved Christmas because these magical things would happen. Decorations would go up. And basically, that time from about Thanksgiving Eve until Christmas took about 10 years. At least it felt like it took 10 years. With all of the anticipation, with all of the lights, the glitter, the songs, the Christmas specials on television. Oh, man, I loved it. And of course, going and visiting Santa while I still believed in Santa and telling him all that I wanted for Christmas. And it magically appearing under the tree. Oh, I loved sitting underneath the Christmas tree, looking at the presents, shaking the boxes and stuff like It was all gift. Then, then I had kids. And it became all law because the Christmas bill showed up on my bank account. All right? I'm just saying. And then these terrible things happened as my daughters got older. They would get gifts that were large boxes. And on the box were these words, some assembly required. (laughs) Now, I don't know if any of you have experienced this particular form of torture. But, oh man, the worst one ever was the Barbie Dreamhouse. I still am in therapy to this day. 
Because that one, some assembly required hog wash. You practically needed a building permit to get that thing going. And you can tell that by the end of the many hours that I put into constructing the Barbie dream house, I was at, I was just gone. And because the stickers at the very end, peeling those little things off and putting them in their proper places and looking on those instructions written in French, you know, to put them in the right places was a mess. Okay, and it got so bad that I was just kind of going, putting them anywhere. And I heard these words, Dad, that's not where they go. Now, I want you to think of it this way. Many people think that salvation is like the Barbie dream house. Some assembly required. It takes effort on our part in order to be saved. Scripture teaches something completely different. So that's anecdotal story number one. Anecdotal story number two, to help us frame our text, is something I have not publicly spoken about ever, but I think it bears discussing at this point because it fits perfectly with a very important portion of our text. When I was a youth, I used to attend a summer camp put on by an organization known as the Care Youth League. And I played football with them, played baseball with this group. And when I went to their summer camps, these were Christian summer camps. And I need to tell you that um, this was one of the places where it was reinforced in my mind. And I was taught explicitly that salvation is my doing. That I had to show God that I was serious about him through my moral life and things like this. And the way they had the camp set up... When you would show up the first day, everybody at the campfire time was given a neckerchief of the same color. And if you were good and you demonstrated to the camp counselors that you were serious about your walk with Jesus, during the campfire time every night, they would either promote you or demote you. And the goal was to get the golden neckerchief. Right below the golden neckerchief was the blue neckerchief. Now, i got to tell you, I applied myself rigorously to achieving the gold neckerchief. I really tried. I made sure that when I was reading my Bible, I was reading my Bible in places where the camp counselors can see me reading my Bible. That whenever it became time for somebody to pray, I was always the first to volunteer and pray out loud. That I was always helping out with the dishes. Don't talk to me about this. (laughs) I was trying to get the gold neckerchief. (laughs) And I actually achieved blue. I achieved the blue neckerchief. And I got to tell you that when I had that blue neckerchief, oh man, was my ego inflated beyond all reason. I was strutting around going, I've got a blue neckerchief. I'm holier than you are. Right? Because take a look, it's blue. I'm only one step away from gold. That's what I was saying inside of my heart. Awful, isn't it? I should have been given a black one. Keep that in mind. Let's go back to our text. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writing to Christians who are genetically Jewish, descendants of Abraham, who are in the church in Rome. He says this, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, by the way, all here means all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. 
as it is written, and here Paul then quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. That's me. That's you. This is the law's verdict about all of us. It's a very unflattering picture. But the reality is it's true. Paul then continues, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the law's verdict about all of us. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, we look at God's law, we look at the Ten Commandments, and they condemn us and show that we are not measuring up. And we think the solution to silencing the condemnation of the law is for us to try harder, to do gooder, to be better. You cannot, yeah, it was bad grammar on purpose. I'm making a point, (laughs) right? You cannot silence the law in this way. In fact, this text makes it very clear what the purpose of the law is. Now, I remember years ago, there was a time my kids broke the fourth commandment, you know, honor your father and mother. And I was saying something, of course, I was pontificating and just being silly. When my son turns to me and he says, dad, zip. What's zip? Why are you doing zip to me, right? He's all zip it. And I said, bup, bup, zip. That was kind of funny at the time, right? We all kind of get the idea. It's a little cute thing. But see, here's the thing. That's what the law is doing to us. You sit there and you say, God, but I'm a good person. Zip. I really meant well. Zip. My intentions were good. Zip. This is what the law is doing to us, telling us to be quiet. And it's hard for us to do because we know that the law is condemning us. We know that we're nailed to the wall. There's no way of getting out of this. And so we're trying to kind of creatively figure out how we can use our words to wiggle out in this situation. But the law won't let you do that. So this is why he says, we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, which is an extremely uncomfortable space to be in. And so here's the reason why. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you plan on standing before God on the day of judgment and say to him, I should be led into heaven because I paid my taxes, I never went to prison, and I burned my Beatles White Album and listened only to Christian music, you will not be saved. By works of the law, no human being, not one, will be justified. Big word in the Greek, dikaiao, it means to be declared righteous. It is a judge term. 
Our equivalent is when the gavel slaps down and the judge says, not guilty. That's what dikaiao is. No one will, no human being will be declared righteous, declared not guilty in God's sight by works of the law. The purpose of the law is not to save you. The purpose of the law is to condemn you. It is to show you your sin. And so we human beings, being the idolaters that we are, we hear the law's condemnation, and it resonates in our hearts because God's Word says the law of God is written in our hearts. Look around. When you watch the news on, you know, at night, right, which I've given up on. It makes me depressed. But when you watch the news, everything assumed on the news assumes God's law, that there's a standard, that the bad news you're hearing about that bad guy who did that bad thing or that bad woman who did that terrible thing or that egregious politician who said that outrageous thing, all of it assumes God's law. Otherwise, none of the things we see on the news would scandalize us. And the reason for that is because we have God's law written on our hearts. And we feel a little bit better about ourselves when we see just how screwed up somebody else is. I mean, I'm guilty of this. Have you ever watched reality TV and say, well, after watching how screwed up they are, I kind of feel normal. I think that's the purpose of reality TV. But see, God's law condemns us all, and that anxiety that we feel from God's law, we all feel it in our hearts. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, literally kind of woken up with a start going, I'm going to die someday and stand before God. What am I going to say? That's your sinful flesh going, I know I've screwed up and I haven't worked out my angle yet. There's no angle to work. Trying harder and doing gooder will not save you. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And this is the great doctrine of the Reformation. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, it's his righteousness, not yours. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. This is the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Good way to think of this verse. It is literally promising that God's righteousness is given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than God's righteousness, does it? And that's given to us as a gift. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. And I need to note here, This gift is completely assembled for you. No assembly required. It is given, all are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you notice what's going to be at the very heart and center of this. It's the cross. The cross is literally the beating heart of our salvation. Here's what he says. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. You can say atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. You see, brothers and sisters, the cross demands salvation by grace through faith. If you're trying to save yourself, you don't need a crucified and risen Savior. 
You're trying to save yourself. You just need a good plan to figure out how to keep God's law. And best of luck to you. Because Scripture says no one's going to be saved that way. But you're going to see it's the cross that makes all the difference. Because on that cross, Jesus took all of our sin upon Himself. And He bled and died for your sins and mine. Even the sin of trying to save yourself by your own good works. So God put Him forward as an atoning sacrifice through His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. The one who simply trusts in Jesus. So then the question comes up next. Think of it this way. If all have sinned and fall short, and anyone who is saved is saved purely by grace as a gift, is there any room for boasting in that way of thinking? No. We're all equal before God as sinners. And anybody who is saved has been saved because of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, which He demonstrated by bleeding and dying for sinful rebels like you and like me. You deserve hell, and I'm going to give you heaven instead as a gift. There's no room for boasting in that scheme, is there? So then the question comes up, so what then becomes of our boasting? Let's go back to Care Youth League summer camp. So there I was. We're more than halfway through, and I had a blue neckerchief. And my internal self-righteousness and arrogance was literally pegging on the extreme end of the needle, right? Next night, I was expecting I was going to win that gold neckerchief. I didn't. I still kept the blue one. I was angry because I was doing everything I knew to get their attention to show them what a good boy that I was. And I felt bad for one poor fellow that particular day because as we were on a day hike, he had his green neckerchief taken away from him and he was given a black neckerchief because while we were on a day hike, he was singing a Rolling Stones song. Nope, you can't do that. Black neckerchief for you on the spot. I'm thinking, well, at least I'm not like that guy. I don't even listen to the stones. Next day, campfire time. I didn't get a gold neckerchief. It stayed blue. I was furious. And in anger and disgust, I stood up, took my blue neckerchief off, threw it on the ground, and smooshed it and stomped it and said, what do I need to do in order to get a gold neckerchief? And there it was. You self-righteous little jerk. To which I was demoted and got a black one. And rightfully so. So you'll notice that when we're judging each other based upon our righteousness, it creates a pecking order. And the people at the top of the pecking order are absolutely arrogant and boastful, which is one of the reasons why they hate the gospel. Because the gospel makes everybody equal. Sinners. So what then becomes of our boasting? 
Paul asks. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There is no boasting in Christianity. None whatsoever. And our hymn that we opened up with, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, you all know the story of the fellow who wrote that, right? He was a slave trader. He literally was a captain on a slave ship. He was responsible, literally, for taking thousands of Africans from Africa and transporting them across the Atlantic to the Americas to be sold on the slave block. Many of them didn't make the crossing. Many of them died, and he threw their carcasses over the ship. Treated them as if they were animals. Some music people actually speculate. And they've made the case that the tune itself, is not a tune that he wrote. But that was a tune that he heard the Africans singing in mourning for them being enslaved and being transferred against their will across the Atlantic and many of them dying and being sick. So he takes that slave tune that he heard and after he hears the gospel, he repents he recognizes that he is not righteous and what he has done is sinful beyond measure and that he truly deserves hell. That's the law, at least a portion of it. That we deserve hell. And he eventually becomes a pastor and he writes the tune. And what are the opening words? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Don't ever sing those words without saying, that's me. That's what the Reformation is all about. That's the gospel that was recovered 500 years ago. And that's what we all need to hear. The good news that none is righteous all have sinned and fall short. That none be justified in God's sight by works of the law. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are saved purely by His grace and His mercy as a gift. No assembly required. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to pause there. When we come back... We're going to take a look at uh, Galatians, chapters 1 through 3. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Roseboro's ramblings on the core doctrine of the Reformation. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. na 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 
Uh, warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, yeah, salvation is like no assembly required. Total gift. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner is next at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58. 208 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right here is a lesson that i taught on the internet on saturday the name of we'll call it rosebro's ramblings on the core doctrine of the reformation grab your bible and get ready to open up first to acts chapter 15 and then galatians chapter 1 no breaks in this one so we'll just get right to it in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I think it behooves us to re-examine what Scripture teaches in regard to the central doctrine of the Christian faith, which, as Lutherans, we talk about it being restored to the church. Luther did not discover this. This is not Luther's doctrine. This is what the Bible teaches. And unfortunately, because of the innovations of um, because of the innovations of the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the creation of indulgences, prayers to the saints, uh, prayers to the Virgin Mary, and other interesting doctrines, all of this got covered up, and uh, they created probably one of the most elaborate and beautifully ornate works-based religions on the planet. But it's not biblical Christianity, and that's the issue. So let's take a look historically. We're going to look at Acts 15 and then hopefully get through the first three chapters of Galatians uh, this evening. We're going to start with Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So salvation, according to these fellows, is by grace because of what Christ did for you on the cross, plus you keeping Torah and uh, the men being circumcised. No. And uh, watch what the text says. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, you'll note that immediately the Apostle Paul springs into action and engages them verbally uh, in mortal combat is the best way to put it. And so it was no, no small distension. This was not, this was not some passive kind of mamby pamby mealy mouth um, exchange of, well, I love you brother, but you know, I think you may be a little bit in error here. No, that's not how this went down at all. 
It was a full-blown debate, and you're going to hear how Paul describes it in the book of Galatians. So no small dissension debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, you're going to note here, these are among Christians who belong to the party of the Pharisees. <laughs> Sit there and go, yeah, I think I know what the problem here is, is that you guys are having a hard time shedding your false religion. Yeah, because the whole Pharisaical religion hinged on, on salvation by works. So some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, which is going to include the keeping of the feast days, the keeping of Shabbat, and uh, basically these were the first Hebrew roots guys, if you would. And the best part about it is, is that these guys grew up in the Hebrew roots, you know, and so... You know, if you want to talk about the Hebrew roots heresy, that's what it is. The very first Hebrew roots guys actually grew up in Pharisaical Judaism, and it wasn't even biblical Judaism. It was something different. So you got to keep Torah, all right? So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. So now watch what happens next, because there's this weird thing that goes around and that is, is that there are people who claim that there are different Christianities, plural. And, you know, so there's Pauline Christianity, there's Petrine Christianity, and there's Johannine Christianity. They look at the four Gospels as if the four Gospels teach different different Christianities from different faith communities within the one, Christ, you know, within the big Catholic Church. That's not what's going on at all. So you're going to note first to to we first person we get to hear what they're saying is not Paul. We know what he did, but we don't know what he said. The first person to hear what they said was Peter. And uh, and note here that Peter is one of these guys who's going to literally defend salvation by grace through faith apart from works. Here's what Peter said, brothers. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So you'll notice here he's referencing the story from Acts chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius and his entire household, Roman soldier who has not who had not been circumcised, nobody in his household had been circumcised, and the Holy Spirit made no distinction between Cornelius and his family and Peter. They all received the Holy Spirit the exact same way, immediately, not by means of baptism or by means of the laying on of hands, but directly from God the Holy Spirit. So that, that was a theological signal to Peter that they are on an equal standing with them, the, the apostles and the Jewish believers. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice by my mouth that the Gentiles should hear the gospel and believe. And the one who knows, a God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them, hold on a second, hit the wrong button, by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them 
having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? So you get a note here. God cleansed their hearts by faith, just like he cleansed the hearts of the apostles by faith. And so note what he says. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And I want you to think about that. If you know your Old Testament very well, this idea of putting God to the test, not a good thing. It's a very bad thing unless God invites you to do so. Normally, the ones who are putting God to the test are idolaters in the Old Testament. And here Peter is pulling that Old Testament language forward into the New Testament and literally applying it to those who are trying to add to salvation, justification, works, uh, and uh, Torah-keeping. And so he says that, um, yeah, you're, you're putting God to the test by doing so. But then he says this, verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Huh. There it is. Cleansed, have their hearts cleansed by faith, saved by grace. Hmm. Peter sounds a lot like a Lutheran. Doesn't sound like one of these works righteousness fellows at all, right? All right, so James chimes in. So the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And you're going to note here that God's doing all the, all the working, all the taking, right? And with this... The words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek Yahweh, seek the Lord, and, the, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James is basically saying, yeah, listen, you know, Moses has had his, had his time, and people you know, proclaim him all over the place. We proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so you'll notice here that he will not burden them with this idea that somehow they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. But there is an admonition to good works and to, you know, to love for neighbor and, and true biblical holiness because they are saved, not in order to be saved. And see, that's the difference, the distinction, the major distinction. Now, that's the that's one of the places where this is clearly taught. The other place is in Romans 3, and we read that out as part of our sermon today. But the, the other place where this is clearly, unambiguously laid out for us is in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And uh, we're going to note a, a little bit of a distinction here, but let's get into it. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 1 reads, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins 
to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to note here, the pleasantries have now ended. And I want you to see the tone of his of this opening <laughs> to this epistle. We'll do a little comparative work here. Watch what Paul does. I mean, if you're uh, familiar with the uh, the Harry Potter stories, I mean, you know, apparently these kids go to a place called Hogwarts. It's a, a boarding school where wizards learn magic and witches learn magic and things like that. And uh, and when the parents send notes home to their 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 student child, you know, that is resident at Hogwarts, and and it's a harshly worded letter. It's it's called a howler, you know. It's it's a it's a message that screams in your face. This is kind of like the equivalent of a howler here. Paul is really kind of short, terse, and you can almost hear the just the seething anger coming through his quill at this point. And uh, that's rather fascinating, but li- well, listen to how this goes. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice, they're deserting, they're deserting Jesus. He's astonished, right? He says, and you're turning, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be, and the Greek word is anathema, damned, cursed, damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Those are some pretty harsh words. Now, I want you to consider, by contrast, the Apostle Paul's opening to 1 Corinthians. Consider what's going on in Corinth. Corinth is really screwed up, okay? (laughs) The church there is just a mess. You have a fellow who is sleeping with his father's wife. And rather than be ashamed of this, the people there are kind of thinking that's kind of cool. (laughs) You have the rich keeping the poor from participating in the Lord's Supper by them hoarding the the elements and getting drunk on the wine. (laughs) Okay, if that isn't screwed up, I don't know what is. And then you have the people literally abusing and misusing the, the, the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, in in just bizarre ways, right? That's just three of the problems going on in Corinth, right? I mean, if you want to talk about a worldly, immature, morally screwed up group of people, the Church of Corinth, I think, would qualify, right? And I want you to compare what we just read. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. That's his opening to the churches of Galatia, right? But take a look at his opening to the Church of Corinth. Here's what it says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks 
to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That seems like quite the amicable letter. I mean, he's writing to them in a quite brotherly tone, and he's, yeah, he's sure he's doing some correction, but man, I mean, he's, <laughs> this is like the exact opposite of what's going on to the with the churches in Galatia. I'm astonished that you are deserting Jesus yeah, and following a different gospel. And if you if you believe a gospel contrary to the one, you're damned. It's like what? Big contrast, right? Uh-huh. That should give you an idea as to the priority here. Being screwed up and falling short and sinning and kind of getting church practice wrong doesn't put you outside of the faith. It does require correction <laughs> and for you to mature, but it doesn't put you outside of the faith. Believing a false gospel, believing you're saved by Jesus plus your works, that puts you outside of Christianity. And so you'll notice just where Paul's priority is. No budging on this at all. Either in tone, he didn't want them to mistakenly think that, hey, we're okay, this is just a minor disagreement. He's like right in their face, right? This is a howler. <laughs> I'm going to read Ingva's comment. That's incredible because any good pietist would have condemned the whole church of Corinth for their sins. Yeah, I know. Paul doesn't seem to be a good pietist, does he? <laughs> like not even close, okay? So that goes to show what's really important. Preach Christ crucified and risen for forgiveness of sins to all freely. Exactly, exactly, without asterisks either. Yeah, you got to keep the law in its proper place, and they had put it in a wrong place. Let's continue then. All right, so we got this idea that I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting, right? For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, Paul says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And boy, is this an important, important statement here. Because Paul is going to lay it out. The gospel he preached, he didn't learn from any human being on planet Earth. That's literally what he's going to say. He says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Huh. So real quick, if I were to ask you, quick, tell me, where do you go in scriptures to find the gospel that Paul preached? You want to see it written down. It's 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where you go. The gospel is not something that is just mentioned but not defined. So let's take a look at that real quick. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul literally writes out the gospel that he received from Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Galatians, we know where he received it. He received it via direct revelation from none other than Jesus Christ himself. I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins, rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. There it is. Who'd he get it from? Jesus. And so this idea, Christ died for our sins. That's like everything. Did Jesus die for some of your sins? A few? A handful? All. All of them. That's right. So if Christ has died for all of your sins, this is truly good news. And that's the center point, the beating heart of the gospel, which they are forsaking. And you'll watch how Paul then brings the, the proclamation of Christ crucified for our sins right into the center of this discussion, but he's going to develop it first. So I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Um, and this is kind of an interesting word, historeo. Um, yeah, it's like he's going up there to kind of do, uh, there's the something he's doing. It's, it's more than just like a visit. There's a little bit of like theological work going on here. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Chapter 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus is a Greek-born convert to Christianity. He is an uncircumcised fellow. So taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of, and watch verse 4, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Yeah, you see, that's kind of the issue here. 
And so Paul is literally saying of the Judaizers, they are doing the devil's work. Devil has sent them into the church in order to bring us back into captivity. They are spying out our freedom and want to catch us and make us slaves again. That's what he's literally saying. So they're false brothers. They're not true. To them, watch this, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Yeah. So to these Judaizers, he basically refused. I will not submit. I will not bow. I will not come under your authority. I reject what you're saying. I don't even recognize you as your brother. That's literally what he's saying. And he did this so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And I would say also for you and for me. That's what was at stake. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked, through, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Good, got to remember, you got to love your neighbor. Keep, you know, the, and it's not in order to be saved. It's because you are saved. Remember the poor Jesus did, right? That's the idea. So interesting little insight here. Only the Apostle Paul can give us these firsthand accounts of some of the inner workings of the conversations between he and the other apostles. And you're going to note he laid out his gospel to them, and they said, yep, you got it. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. You keep talking to the Gentiles. We'll keep talking to the circumcised. And that's how it was going, going just fine. But you see, there's this, always this little tension going on here when it comes to justification. So chapter 2, verse 11, then tells us a story about Peter. Peter came to the city of Antioch. Antioch's a Gentile town. Maybe he was, they flew him up for a conference or a seminar or maybe to preach or to teach, right? And uh, and while he, when he first arrived there, there were no other Jews in sight at least ones who were, make a stink about things. None of them, okay? <laughs> and so what did Peter do? Remember, Jews of Peter's time didn't eat with Gentiles. So he's going to eat with them. And if he's with them in their home eating with them, what do you think he's eating? Hmm, maybe he had bacon and eggs for breakfast, right? Yeah, that's probably what's going on there. Okay, so watch. Watch how the story unfolds because he's doing that. He's has no pangs of guilt whatsoever until, and watch what happens on the until. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So much for the infallible Pope. <laughs> the first Pope was just. The Apostle Paul didn't recognize him as Pope and condemned him right to his face in front of everybody. <laughs> All right. 
So, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That's right. Is that bacon on your breath? I smell, Peter. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself. Watch this. Fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified. And there's your Greek word again, dikaiao, be declared righteous. We know that a person is not declared righteous, justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. We Jews, we've believed in Jesus so that we can be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Pop quiz. Okay, I hope you were paying attention. This is a, all about reading comprehension according to what we just read. Verse 16, if you want to be specific, how many people will be declared righteous and saved on the last day by their works? Zero. No one. Not one person. So why are you trying so hard to save yourself that way? Right? Give it up. Give it up. No one's going to be saved that way. Not Jew or Gentile. Right, let's take a look here. Yep, Ingva says zero. He got he got the zero in here. He says, it is truly, is it truly that the Roman Catholics will claim that Paul is really only talking about the ceremonial law? You know, I've heard all kinds of strange, bizarre sophistry in order to get around this. This is not ceremonial law. This is Torah. It's by works of the law. It's not just ceremonial. It's the whole kit and caboodle. This is the moral law. This is the Ten Commandments. Nobody's going to be saved by keeping these things. So you'll notice he's contrasting. You're either saved by works or you're saved by faith. We're trying to be saved by faith, not by works, because nobody, not one person is going to be saved by works. So then Paul continues, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, which is true about all of us, is Christ then a servant of sin? <laughs> which you can hear, this is almost like one of their arguments, right? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And see, that's kind of the point. If you're trying to save yourself, what do you need a crucified and risen Savior for? If you're justified by your law-keeping, 
your good works, your um, growth in holiness. If you're saved by that, what do you need a crucified and risen Savior for? See, that's into your note. Paul here isn't saying, I don't nullify the law. He says, no way, I'm not going to nullify the gospel. I'm not going to nullify the grace of God. That's the thing you got to protect, right? So I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. And see, you note then, everything hinges and centers on Jesus, God in human flesh, crucified for our sins. Now, real quick, real quick, second here. Does the Nicene Creed teach this? I want you to think about that. Just off the top of your head, think about it. Does the Nicene Creed teach salvation by what Christ has done and for us on the cross? Nicene Creed. Let's start at the beginning because it's so wonderful. And this is what? 315 AD when this is hammered out. And I can show you from the writings of some of the early Christian apologists, Irenaeus in particular, um, and I think Ignatius and others, that um, they had a rough draft of the Nicene Creed 100 years, 150 years earlier, called the Rule of Faith. And it reads a lot like this, a little bit more detail, but the Rule of Faith... So let's let's take a look at the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So here we got this good God talk. We believe in God the Father. We believe that Jesus is God himself. And then watch the next statement who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. Now, you can do this distributively. Watch this. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven? Who for us men and for our salvation was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary? For us men and for our salvation was made man, was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, for us men and for our salvation, he suffered and was buried. I think the Nicene Creed teaches salvation by grace through faith because of what Christ has done for us. Yes, it does. That's the whole point of this, for us and for our salvation. So you know then, Paul then, in, this, in, in chapter 3, anchors all of this in the death, sufferings of Christ for our sins publicly portrayed as crucified. God made him to be sin. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what the texts say. He suffered for your sins and for mine to ransom us, to redeem us, to propitiate the wrath of God. All of that is true. So he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you was before your guys that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? Talking about the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit 
by works of the law or by hearing with faith? <laughs> the answer to the question, by the way, is hearing with faith. He's going to make that point very clear as this chapter develops. But that's the answer to the question. <sighs> are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. So know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not the ones who keep Torah. <laughs> it's the ones by faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, declare righteous, the Gentiles by faith, uh huh, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely, uh-huh, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continually do them. That's the gist of the verb there. Keep on keeping on. Keep on doing them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Another pop quiz here, what we just read in verse 11, how many people will be justified by the law? No one. Notice the redundancy helps us out a little bit here. Is there any ambiguity in this? Well, maybe I'll make it. No, you won't. <laughs> so surrender, you're a sinner. So, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Mm -hmm. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. And here it is clear now by faith. Yep. Paul then says this to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it. Once it has been ratified, think of it as a contract. Once the ink is on the, is on the contract, you can't change it. So now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring uh, in the Hebrew, Zerah, singular. And uh, in here in the Greek, it's uh, spermate, and it's singular. And to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, the Torah, which came 430 years afterwards, does not, in fact, you can almost say cannot annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, 
it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And so you'll notice here that Galatians gives us a primer on how to understand two of the major covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Mosaic covenant is the one that comes 430 years later. Paul says that one that came 430 years later cannot nullify or annul the Abrahamic covenant. And when God cut that covenant with Abraham, what was his state of consciousness when God gave the promises in the Abrahamic covenant? He was zonked. I mean, the guy was sawn logs. He was totally passed out. Okay. God is the one who made all the promises. Abraham was like, wasn't even coherent. God had, he wakes up and goes, what happened? God said, well, let me tell you what I said. <laughs> right? So the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral, one-way covenant. God makes all the promises, takes all the curses upon himself, and, and he promises the inheritance as a gift by faith. So you can't. So that no, the Mosaic Covenant, which comes four hundred thirty years later, can't undo that. That's Paul's point. And so the Mosaic Covenant has always got to be looked at as temporary. It had a purpose, and Paul will explain that purpose to us. Verse nineteen. So why then the Torah? It was added because of transgressions. Until, uh -huh, notice the preposition. Until. The offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So then, is the Torah, the law, contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if, the law, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You and me, brothers. So now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And as for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Notice your baptism is in play here. So there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, no female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Seems pretty straightforward when you just kind of work it through like that, does it? Any doubt in your minds that we're saved by grace through faith alone? Biblical, proper distinction of law and gospel, taught in scripture, proper understanding of the, of the covenants of the Old Testament, taught in scripture. We don't even have to guess. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping track of the brouhaha that has been brewing on the internet regarding recent comments made by none other than John Piper. I don't know if you've seen this, but John Piper literally has got the internet in a knot and everybody's screaming and pulling their hairs out, hair out of their head because he is teaching, at least the way he phrased it, a doctrine that sounds exactly like Rome. <laughs> and... What John Piper did is he affirmed in a recent article that we are saved by grace through faith alone. 
And then he went on to say, however, final salvation is by works alone. And you just sit there and go, what? <laughs> What's final salvation? Is that like final jeopardy? You know, <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever watched Jeopardy. It's like the final round. Yeah. So, so what do you make of that? Well, I affirm we're justified by grace through faith alone, but final salvation is by works alone. Sounds a lot like Rome, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's the problem. He's he's sloppy with his language. You cannot do theology without texts. You can't do it. So don't try. And unfortunately, what Piper was trafficking in was abstractions rather than exegesis. You got to be careful with that because we've noted our text says that we are saved by grace through faith alone, straight up, apart from works. By works of the law, no one will be declared righteous before God. What do we do with this text, though? I'm going to teach you what to do with it because we're going to look at a text. I'm going to, I want books and I want the word opened and opened. And I want it in the book of Revelation. All right. <clears throat> it's Revelation 20, particularly verse 12. Let's take a look at it and see if this creates anxiety for us. And if it does, don't worry, we'll clean it up. Revelation 20. All right. Verse, uh, let's see here. Ah, here it is. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what do you do with that? There it is. Great white throne judgment. We're going to be judged by what we've done. See, final salvation is by works alone. No. <laughs> like, not at all. Okay. And see, this is the problem. You don't do theology without texts. Always be leery of the fellow who claims to hear directly from God, like John Piper. Um, but is doing theology without texts. It's not a smart thing. You don't want to do this. So you're going to note, we'll kind of back this up. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the, book of, into the lake of fire. Notice there's books plural. One book is the book of life. The other is the book of deeds, if you would. To help us one more small bit here, important to note something, that there is a portion of those books that is mentioned in Colossians chapter 2. And this is where we need to pay real close attention because I think those who leave this out imperil their own salvation. Colossians chapter 2, 
wonderful passage that begins in verse eight, and I'm gonna pay we're gonna pay close attention to a bit of this. Here's what it says see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Boy, I tell you, so much of the stuff I've been reviewing on my program lately, that's a good way of describing it. Just empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So you note here, our baptism is vital. We've been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And it says that we've had our hearts circumcised, none other than by Christ himself. The text goes on then says, and you who were dead, that's past tense, you was dead, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God has made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And here's the important part. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so vital bit of information the record of debt that stood against us so think of it this way the books are opened right the books are opened the section in your book titled the record of debt what has happened to that portion of the books for you for me who've been united with christ canceled it's been zeroed out jesus has literally ripped it out of the books and where is it located he nailed it to the cross <laughs> so here's the best part so there you are day of judgment great white throne judgment it's absolutely true you are going to be judged according to what you have done what's in the books <laughs> all your good works that's it Every good work you've ever done is recorded in there. No sins are in there at all. None. Jesus has cooked the books in your favor. The accounting, the, the accounting auditing firms at this point are calling foul. Something this these books don't balance. This is not right. There's he's, he's cooked the books. Yes, he did. He took all the record of debt. He paid that debt for you, nailed it to the cross. That whole record of debt is out of your books. So you will be judged by what you have done. And now every tiny little good work, small, microscopic, or even huge, the times that you changed the diapers on your babies and held them and comforted them and got them back to sleep or nursed them when they were sick or helped them with their homework or you loved your spouse. All of these good works, they're written down and you will be judged according to your works, according to your deeds. And Jesus is going to reward all of them. Tell me this isn't amazing, right? So Piper 
totally freaking everybody out. Needlessly so, I would say. So, oh, well, the final salvation is based upon works. No, it's not. <laughs> it just – final salvation is just kind of like the icing on the cake of salvation itself. The day of judgment, the great white throne. Brothers and sisters, you have nothing to fear. You're going to approach that great white throne, and you're going to see Jesus' love-filled eyes. And he's going to open that book, and there's not a thing in there, not one thing in there that will condemn you. He's going to do an audit of your life, and the only thing he sees is all your good works. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. This is why we're zealous for good works. We're, we're, we're free in Christ to do good works. They're amazing. And see, Piper's dumb way of talking about this has got everybody worried about their salvation. No. You shouldn't worry about your salvation at all, and you should never fear that Revelation says you will be judged according to what you've done, ever. Because when you know the fuller picture of what Scripture reveals, sit there and go, yeah, bring it on. Man, I want to go out and do a whole bunch more. I want I want a whole bunch of stuff recorded. <laughs> right? So lay it for yourselves, treasures in heaven, because you are saved, and you will be there. Your Christ has bled and died for you, and you have been united with him in baptism, into his death, into his resurrection. Salvation, like I said earlier, it is not some assembly required. It is finished. It is accomplished for you by everything that Christ has done. The day of judgment will be a day of great joy for you. You're going to be slack-jawed, slack-jawed at what Christ is going to say to you. And then when it's all said and done, and the throne judgment is done, then it's time to party like it's the year zero of the new earth. Because it will be. In a world without end. Days without end. Can't wait. It's going to be fantastic. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.